Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME Clinical Chart Review. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine and by CME Outfitters, LLC. Indiana University School of Medicine and CME Outfitters, LLC gratefully acknowledge educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company and Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated and from Pfizer Incorporated in support of this CE activity. This activity is titled Assessing and Managing the Patient with Bipolar Mania, Part 2. Our moderator for this activity is Dr. Roger S. McIntyre. Our distinguished guest faculty for this activity is Dr. Mark A. Fry. Dr. McIntyre is the head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at University Health Network and Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario. Dr. McIntyre has disclosed that he receives grant research support from Eli Lilly and Company, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, and Shire Pharmaceuticals, as well as private industries or nonprofit funds. Stanley Medical Research Institute, National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression. He serves on the advisory boards of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Eli Lilly and Company, France Foundation, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, H. Lundbeck AS, Organon, Pfizer Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, Shire Pharmaceuticals, and Solvay Wyatt. He serves on the Speakers Bureau of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, H. Lundbeck AS, Shearing Plow Corporation, and Wyatt Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Fry is Professor of Psychiatry and the Director of the Integrated Mood Group at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Fry has disclosed that he receives grant support from Mayo Foundation, National Alliance for Schizophrenia and Depression, National Institute of Mental Health, National Institute of Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, and Pfizer Incorporated. He serves as a consultant to Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Cephalon Incorporated, Dai Nippon Sumitomo Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, Medtronic Incorporated, Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, and Sephracor Incorporated. Dr. Fry has participated in CME activities supported by AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Eli Lilly & Company, GlaxoSmithKline, Otsuka Pharmaceuticals, Pfizer Incorporated, and Shearing Plow Corporation. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 446. Over the next hour, Dr. McIntyre and Dr. Fry will review a patient case study and take questions from the audience. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. At the end of this CE activity, participants should be able to use best available evidence to guide selection of pharmacotherapy for manic episodes. Those applying for nursing credit should be able to compare pharmacologic agents used to treat mania based on efficacy and safety data. Presentation slides along with a patient chart discussed during today's activity can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 446 or call 877-CME-PROS. To 
to receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Hello, it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's Neuroscience CME Chart Review. I'm Dr. Roger McIntyre. I'm Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto and Head of the Mood Disorder Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network. I'm very pleased to be the moderator of this Neuroscience CME Chart Review Series on Bipolar Disorder Diagnosis and Management. Today's program will focus on the management of bipolar disorder. I am pleased to introduce uh, friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Fry. Uh, Dr. Fry is the professor of psychiatry at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, first of all, uh, Mark, welcome to today's program. Hi, Roger. Thanks for having me. Glad you could join us. This is a, a large topic, the topic of the management of bipolar disorder. Towards the aim of covering this vast topic, I understand you have a case that you're going to lead off, a case that's uh, entitled by the name George. Yeah, this is a, a gentleman I've been working with now recently, and I thought the, the, the history of present illness is an interesting one for management issues. So George uh, is a graduate student and uh, uh, presented to our clinic around the time of the autumnal equinox in September uh, with a chief complaint of uh, marked irritability and difficulties with concentration. He had noted that for the last two weeks he really was having uh, great difficulty in working with his fellow graduate students complaining of a lot of anxiety, a lot of inattentiveness, and most notably frustration um, uh, with their hesitation to sign up for one of his uh, Facebook uh, social networking sites. He recognized in retrospect as we were talking uh, that uh, he gave his fellow students very little opportunity to really ask questions about the network site as he was monopolizing the conversation in a rather frenzied sales pitch. And he recognized as well that that was really out of character for him. In addition to that, he um, was starting to question whether or not there was a soft uh, conspiracy uh, to, with these students um, in not joining his network site. Hmm. Sounds I, like he, uh, he had difficulties related to the, the seasonal pattern. Often patients will complain about sleep. How was his sleep? Well, actually, the sleep was disturbed. That wasn't really his main concern, but on further questioning, he definitely was having early onset insomnia. He was drinking some, um, and was drinking uh, to really try to uh, help get to sleep. And uh, when asking about that specific alcohol amount, it was typically three to four glasses of wine, which was, again, new for him. He overall was actually sleeping less, about six hours, and uh, did not sense that there was any fatigue. In fact, he was quite energetic, was productive, but referenced that it was a very uncomfortable feeling and, and kind of used the quotes, wired and tired. From a past medical history, um, uh, no significant uh, drug allergies. There was uh, problems with obesity. His BMI was 30. And this really seemed to be driven by uh, mood symptoms. Every winter he would have significant depressive symptoms with hypersomnia, hyperphagia, eating a lot of comfort foods without a lot of exercise. And so this weight gain that he had was slow and steady and, and related to seasonal episodes of depression. Family history was significant for a mother with some cycling mood disorder, not exactly clear as to what that was, but it was comorbid with alcohol dependence and she had an episode of pancreatitis at some point in the past. 
And his dad had an early uh, onset heart attack uh, in his uh, mid-40s, but it was unclear as what the primary factor of that heart attack was. So with this first visit of uh, really um, complaining of significant irritability, uh, it was notable that uh, his speech was pressured on exam. His mood was quite dysphoric. There was a real intense uh, affect thought processing-wise. He was actually logical, very goal-directed. There was no uh, acute suicidality or homicidality. While there was some very mild paranoid ideation, there was no frank psychosis. Uh, I went ahead and got some uh, lab tests, and his urine tox screen was negative. CBC was uh, within normal limits. TSH uh, was unimpressive. He did have a little bit of an elevation on both his AFT and ALT at 1665, respectively, which is just above the reference range of normal for our, our lab. And the last thing I actually did in the, the initial workup was getting a 12 lead EKG, and all of his uh, intervals looked fine, specifically his uh, corrected QT interval at 406 milliseconds. So um, I talked with him about um, this irritability and this uncomfortable, though productive, energy. And that uh, episode, uh, with these preceding episodes of seasonal depression, um, gave him a diagnosis of bipolar type 1 disorder. Um, what I tried to emphasize was the importance of trying to minimize alcohol use. Tried to educate mm -hmm. him that while uh, I knew he was trying to use alcohol as a sleep aid, that in fact the long run it's probably going to make his illness more difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. So encouraging abstinence, I wanted to provide him uh, a short-term course of lorazepam, 1 to 2 milligrams, uh, at bedtime, not only to help with sleep, but to manage any potential symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. Mm -hmm. We started talking about mood stabilizers, and the, one, the, the two that I really thought of in the context of having an evidence-based medicine uh, data set for bipolar type 1 disorder and some data for concurrent alcohol use was valparate and quetiapine. Um, given the history of uh, pancreatitis in the family related to alcoholism, which was uh, uh, of some uh, theoretical concern, we went ahead and decided to pursue quetiapine and on an outpatient basis um, uh, started titrating up to 300 milligrams at bedtime. I could ask you a question there, Mark. Uh, there's a lot of material there that we've covered. This is someone who clearly presents with a very typical bipolar presentation. Maybe we'll talk a bit more about his alcohol use. Um, this critical decision, the, the decision whether to use a single stabilizing agent or to use two agents, for example, the combination of an anticonvulsant with an atypical antipsychotic, you mentioned evidence base. What, in fact, would make you say, in your clinical practice, you're more likely to select monotherapy versus combination? Because, as as you know, there's there's evidence for both of these strategies in treating mania. You know, this is um, um, a, a great question, and it's where we have to take the evidence base and really translate it to the individualized treatment. In this case, for George. And I would actually argue that um, while I chose quetiapine with concurrent lorazepam, um, I actually see that as, as co-therapy. It's not mm -hmm. co-therapy with two mood stabilizers, but we know that adjunctive lorazepam can be helpful for sleep restoration, for the treatment of mania, and for alcohol withdrawal. And, and uh, in that context, context uh, it seemed like a reasonable combination to get started with. You know our FDA indications 
primarily are for monotherapy, but it's always important to remember that in those clinical trials, there were PRN uh, benzodiazepine mm -hmm. uh, medications mm -hmm. that were available. Your question about more uh, standard mood stabilization co-therapy is a good one. I'm not aware of any studies that have looked at simultaneous commencement of two different anti-manic mood stabilizers, but that's a great study to be done because we know that there can be accelerating advantages of getting symptoms treated faster with co-therapy. I like your point about lorazepam. I think we've often perhaps not thought of lorazepam as necessarily another treatment. Of course, it is another treatment, and as you correctly point out, in clinical trials that have evaluated anti-manic therapies, lorazepam and or other benzodiazepines are permitted as so-called rescue medication. Um, rescue medication is an, is an interesting phrase, but I think worth pointing out lorazepam is uh, obviously a part of co-therapy, so we're probably using co-therapy more than we think we are in many of these situations. Exactly. Let's say we can move on to how things unfolded over the first uh, one to two visits. So, so we, we uh, reviewed his diagnosis of bipolar disorder. We emphasized the importance of staying sober and reviewed titration guidelines. I had asked to set up a follow-up appointment in several days' time just to make sure uh, that we are getting the anti-manic response that we wanted. Um, unfortunately, when he returned to clinic, um, he had stopped the medication just after two nights, significantly complaining of excessive sedation and increased appetite, and he was concerned about both of those uh, symptoms not wanting to, to have side effects such as those. And so what was happening is he was now off the medications, and his irritability, uh, the paranoia was continuing to escalate. And what seemed to be different than the, the, the initial evaluation was an increasing sense of uh, dysphoria and depression and much stronger mixed presentation. So um, knowing that it had been uh, just within a week uh, with my initial evaluation, we again emphasized the importance uh, of abstinence and educating about the negative impacts of alcohol on sleep and mood and his liver function tests. We went ahead and got the lorazepam started again, and we then reviewed the merits of some uh, alternate mood-stabilizing treatments. And we specifically uh, in, uh, reviewed the merits of lithium, carbamazepine, and a number of other atypical antipsychotics. Clinically, what I was really struggling was, with was uh, a clear presentation of very dysphoric manium that I'm already starting to get a sense that treatment adherence in the midst of mania is, is challenging, which we know to be true, and that side effects have prompted discontinuation of, of medication. The various treatments that are available, at least pharmacologically, you, you've highlighted uh, for us, Mark, lithium, carbamazepine, other atypical antipsychotics. In, in light of the fact that he does have mixed-state features, how much would that uh, affect your uh, thinking about using lithium? And, and Maybe phrasing the question slightly different. In light of the evidence that does suggest lithium may be less efficacious in mixed-state patients. Um, are, are you convinced with that literature, and do you think that that literature is convincing enough to say, well, maybe lithium would be a second or third line in this situation? It's a very small literature, this idea that depressive symptoms in mania 
um, have been shown to respond less well to lithium and in one study preferentially respond to valproate. Mm -hmm. um, that definitely weighed into my decision-making for this gentleman, but I also was thinking about um, the potential difficulties of using lithium on an outpatient basis with someone who's been recently drinking and any concerns about potential volume depletion and, and knowing already that adherence has been difficult. And my thought was I really wanted to go to a single daily dose if I could. And, and that really was the medication um, that got ruled out um, convincingly for the dysphoric or mixed presentation, the concurrent drinking and uh, already difficulties with treatment adherence, and so in my mind, trying to find something uh, that would have a simpler regimen. How did things uh, proceed with George from there? Well, we um, talked about the various types of treatments, and we and he was not interested in in the potential merits of carbamazepine, which I think, in retrospect, was a good idea, just given um, the multiple daily dosing uh, of the drug. Uh, and we ultimately chose a second atypical antipsychotic. One of the questions I'm often asking myself, Mark, I'm interested in your, your thoughts on this. If a patient presents, as George does, who has manic features, clearly, uh, mixed features more specifically, and has, um, if not well-organized, paranoid delusions, has paranoia as a, as a therapeutic target, for you, does that automatically mean an atypical antipsychotic or is a anticonvulsant agent like valprate. I mean, you, you were clear why valprate wasn't appropriate here, but assuming this person's had, had a normal liver function, alcohol was not part of the picture, just the principle of using an anticonvulsant as a monotherapy in someone who has psychotic features versus using an atypical, it's, it's your thoughts on that. Well, we, we know from uh, phenomenologic studies looking at the longitudinal course of illness that if psychotic symptoms are in the context of an acute mood episode, in this case mania, that those psychotic symptoms do respond to lithium and anticonvulsants um, quite well. And I think that is often an under-recognized uh, clinical benefit of these medications. Certainly, um, atypical antipsychotics can treat psychotic mania, but they as well treat non-psychotic symptoms quite effectively. And I would say again in, in this case that I didn't feel as if George was fully psychotic, but his paranoid ideation was increasing with each uh, subsequent visit. One of the uh, compelling bodies of literature that's really uh, amassed in the last five to seven years has been the use of psychosocial interventions, more specifically manual-based therapy like cognitive behavioral therapy. There's others like social rhythm and family therapy and group psychoeducation. Sequentially, and I think we, you know, we're thinking about someone who's acutely manic, do you see the psychosocial treatments as being initiated at the same time as medication in this case, or would you sequence it in such a way that you know medications first followed by psychosocial interventions later? It may seem like a somewhat axiomatic question, but I think there's still some confusion on that. Well, there's no question that uh, psychosocial education is absolutely critical for optimizing mood stability. I, I think outside of general education regarding treatment adherence, the importance of taking medications, and the importance of sleep hygiene, 
I'm not sure the other elements of psychosocial education are, are going to be terribly successful in the midst of acute mania. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's no question that sleep restoration is one of the most important interventions that we need to think about. And, and that certainly can be um, something we educate um, the patients in the context of the acute episode. I would see psychosocial treatments as, as um, uh, critical in the acute phase of bipolar depression and maintenance pharmacotherapy. One of the unfortunate experiences for George is that his first effort at medication was one that was faced with adverse event. He stopped medication because of sedation and, as you mentioned, some of the other difficulties with uh, uh, quetiapine. Um, often that puts medic- people off medication once they've had that unfortunate uh, first experience. Um, where do you see the role for advocacy in someone like George or for you know, other patients we see who are uh, un- you know, struggling to live with their illness? Again, I, um, a sense of uh, support and really recognizing uh, other people with the illness is um, critical. And it's not something that I try to do right away, but once there is a degree of stability, I think groups such as the Depression Bioforce Support Alliance and NAMI are, are critical in uh, situations such as this with a newly diagnosed bipolar patient to have peers, not necessarily family members, who can really provide additional support uh, and uh, illness recognition is going to be is going to be important. Well, Mark, there's, uh, like any good case, it, it raises more questions than it actually answers. I want to thank you for sharing not only the case with George, but also your insights uh, regarding the questions. I certainly uh, have many more questions to, to uh, really ask you. Um, what I'd like to do now, if I could, is open the lines to our listeners and provide them now an opportunity to ask yourself qu- uh, questions pertaining to George and some of the therapeutic principles that you've raised today. Thanks, Roger. While we're waiting to take audience questions, I'd like to let our audience know that there are additional online resources at www.neurosciencecme.com. At the conclusion of this Q&A session with Dr. Mark Fry, you'll be automatically redirected to this site. I'd encourage you to take advantage of this evidence-based resource. Mark, we've had an enormous amount of questions that have come in already pertaining to George and many of the um, principles that we were speaking to during the case The first one, which I know is very much your area of expertise, and that's alcohol use in bipolar disorder. Very straightforward question. Is there a safe dose of alcohol in a patient with bipolar disorder? Uh, uh, Good question indeed, and and I I think there are are a number of different ways to really think about uh, safety as as the the audience member is really wanting to answer for in the context of bipolar, bipolar illness. The easy question uh, really doesn't pertain to George right now. When someone is in a euthymic state, so their mood is stable, treatment adherence is not an issue, things are going uh, reasonably well, you know, a lot of patients will ask, is it okay to have a glass of wine with, you know, a special occasion or a weekend out with friends, something like that. And and, uh, I actually think there can be circumstances where that is entirely appropriate. it's really about understanding um, uh, the longitudinal course of that patient's illness, really understanding their sobriety and, and how alcohol is being used. Um, I would uh, say that that is not the case here with George in that uh, not only are we not in a euthymic state with a well-established course of illness, but it's a relatively new patient. Um, 
and he's in the midst of acute mania, um, I would say that uh, any alcohol use here is, is identified as potentially problematic. I think I got concerned in that this was outpatient management where we know less about the patient in contrast to someone who's in the hospital with nursing 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and, and that was where uh, sort of the, the, the main jettison of my concern was. From an NIAAA standard, we generally refer to hazardous drinking as, uh, as five drinks, a can of beer, a glass of wine, a shot of liquor for uh, a man and four drinks for uh, a woman. So the, the initial history for George when he endorsed initially drinking three to four glasses of wine a night is really approaching an area that uh, I would view as, as hazardous, problematic, and thus a concern. Mark, I'm just going to uh, ask our operator if there's any live callers that would like to pose a question to Dr. Mark Fry. Uh, our operator? Yes, sir. It does appear we have a question from the side of Sheila Barr. Go ahead, please, doctor. Uh, yes, uh, very interesting case, and certainly uh, appreciate all the, the uh, information you, you've given us. Um, if I might uh, sort of change a little bit, that I have a, a patient who is 26 years old, uh, one of the bipolar spectrum disorders. You never see her with, at any time, fluid mania, even hypomania. It's hard to, to pick out but she will just rapidly cycle and crash into depressive episodes, has had two episodes of postpartum depression, and uh, has done very, very well just on uh, Seroquel and stabilized on that uh, at 200 milligrams a day. The problem being, and we've taken her through two pregnancies and stayed on, whenever we, she's always wanted to go off because she complains of chronic fatigue. And so recently I've introduced... Uh, uh, lithium, partly because she ended up being hospitalized with another depressive episode when uh, we tried to add just a little bit of Prozac. It just, uh, first she was seeming better, but then crashed into major depression, suicide, had to hospitalize her, put lithium on in the hospital. She has a lithium level now stable at one for the past six weeks. Uh, but she has a big concern about weight gain. She did with the Seroquel not dramatic weight gain, but more than she would like, and she knows that that is potential additive effect. And so, Let me just, um, if I could just intervene there. So you're wondering about the management of ongoing depressive symptoms in someone who's now on two treatments, lithium and quetiapine? Yeah, what we're trying, what we're trying to do is, is wean her off the Seroquel and go to the lithium alone. Okay, let me see if we can just sort of look at that and parse different parts to the question. So what I'm hearing is, is someone who has typical bipolar disorder, that is they're not responding adequately to a monotherapy quetiapin. Lithium no, she did. She responded very well. Okay, but had some fatigue. Lithium was added. So we've a combination. You're trying to transition to lithium. Mark, right. your thoughts in terms of managing that part, and I'm also hearing possible treatment emergent adverse events. Yeah, very uh, complicated, though interesting case. And I guess I'm going I'm to try to bring it back to George wherever we can because it, it does sound like one aspect of his uh, treatment plan, which we talked about at the very end, uh, was really uh, anticipating another episode of depression given his seasonal uh, uh, bipolar depressive episodes. I think what's relevant um, or what I find interesting about your 26-year-old bipolar spectrum patient is not only the olanzapine responsivity, 
but just this idea that uh, that the antidepressant not only wasn't helpful but actually made the uh, the depression worse. It sounds like um, it sounds like she was an olanzapine responder, a lanspine lithium co-therapy responder. The issue is increasing side effect concerns of uh, weight gain and ongoing depressive symptoms. Um, if lithium is going to be part of her maintenance pharmacotherapy and you're concerned about depression uh, um, uh, op, uh, really maximizing depression outcome, we need to very carefully monitor her thyroid function. Uh, we know with lithium-maintained bipolar patients that very subtle uh, deficits in thyroid function can be highly meaningful from the standpoint of depression prophylaxis failure. And so when I see a young woman like your patient who is already in an age group where we might see some first onset thyroid dysfunction, that's something I would pay very close attention to. The good news is we can treat that very effectively with an adjunctive dose of thyroxine. I think another couple treatments that I might consider for her um, uh, would be either lamotrigine as a um, uh, as a crossover to maintenance therapy, knowing that the depression prophylaxis is really where we see the strongest data with patients with bipolar disorder type one. I know that yours is a spectrum, but this is where we can kind of translate some of the evidence-based medicine, or perhaps lithium in concert with um, a a different type of uh, antidepressant such as Welbutrin or maybe an atypical compound such as modafinil. Um, those would be some of my initial thoughts, but I think you're highlighting the importance of really uh, maximizing outcomes first with mood stabilizers and then knowing that we may need to go to co-therapy mood stabilization or mood stabilization with uh, um, alternative uh, antidepressant therapies. Thank you very much for your, your question. I will mention that modafinil is, is indeed off-label in bipolar disorder. Uh, Mark, one of the questions that comes in is, why did you indicate the autumnal equinox is important in your case overview? Well, living in Minnesota, where we have very distinct seasons, uh, we can see a um, clear liability for mood change uh, for bipolars. It, it uh, tends to be some neurobiology that's, uh, uh, that has a relationship to these light-dark cycles or these Zietgebers, if you will. Mm -hmm. We can see mood instability uh, at the time of each equinox, which we think is related to a shift in light. Um, and that we can also see liability just with the duration of light that we might see in the summertime. Um, it's something that um, we, we tend to see with uh, some frequency, but I wouldn't say that that's the only time that, that uh, bipolar patients can get manic. I want to let our audience know that we have many, many questions coming in, and we're going to go through these uh, with a high rate of speed to try and get through as many as we can, but we also want to answer them uh, you know, uh, thoroughly and comprehensively. Another question, Mark, your case and many of our patients are taking more than one medication. Is there any resource that you uh, reach out to for predicting drug interactions? So we've got several questions around drug-drug interactions. Is there any... Um, user-friendly resource that not only looks at medications that we commonly prescribe, but also over-the-counter and herbaceuticals and so on? Yeah, you know, this is something that is, is increasingly relevant in our practice, with just as our pharmacopoeia continues to expand, as well as uh, over-the-counter remedies continue, uh, continue to expand without a lot of monitoring uh, and regulation. So, um, the, the responsibility is ours to be sure. You know, there are a number of websites that can be potentially helpful here. I just generally use 
um, uh, a micrometics type of uh, web-based program where I just put in quickly the name of the drug and then it has all sorts of subscales as to uh, parts of the package insert and what I really key in on is uh, 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 metabolic half-life elimination and drug-drug interactions and that's uh, generally uh, good enough for me. We'll just follow that up, Mark, by saying that I've often cited your paper uh, where you reported on the increasing use of polypharmacy during the last uh, couple of decades. It was quite a, uh, a statistic where we're certainly seeing not only an increase in polypharmacy, but it's on the up and up. Um, another question here, Mark, regarding benzodiazepines. This is a common question. When starting a patient on a medication that is, in quotes, activating, end of quotes, like aripiprazole, would you routinely initiate a benzodiazepine, co-prescribe a benzodiazepine, and if not, what would you typically do? Well, I, I think uh, activating compounds such as uh, aripiprazole, if they're being used in the context of acute mania, as in the case of George, I do. Um, it, it, it is of note, however, that in this case specifically, I'm also uh, generating benefit with lorazepam as it relates to his alcohol use and trying to minimize any symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. Um, using that in the in the context of a, of acute mania, that sure makes a lot of sense. If if activating compounds are really getting started more in a maintenance phase, where there might not be syndromal illness at, at the present, um, I wouldn't necessarily um, co-prescribe, but I might write it as a PRN or, or quickly check up at next follow-up. And if that is of concern, it's definitely a medication that can help with that uh, that activating uh, acathesia-like side effect. Related question, Mark, you prescribe a benzodiazepine with another treatment in bipolar disorder. Do you have a, a timeline vis-a-vis -vis how long you would typically remain, keep someone on a benzo? Do you have any sort of framework that you use? That's, that's an excellent question because it really um, is important to follow that benzodiazepine use in um, acute mania. These medicines can be very, very helpful. They're not mood stabilizers, but I would certainly view them as, as adjunctive anti-manic agents. And um, they can be helpful for the symptoms of mania. They can help with sleep. And we know that sleep in and of itself is an incredibly important restorative process as we treat symptoms of mania. Um, it is rare uh, for me to really continue to prescribe benzodiazepines once um, we are, you know, uh, out, out of the manic episode or even where we're starting to see you know, much or very much improvement. Uh, if, it, if I am using it in that case, it's really to manage a potential side effect. I, I think clinicians often tend to shy away from the use of these medicines for concerns that they're potentially addictive or that a tolerance pattern is going to develop. Um, and certainly that, that literature and experience is there, but this is really kind of doing a uh, priority check as to what needs to be addressed first, and stabilizing acute mania would really be the priority. A short snapper here, Mark. Doses of atypicals in bipolar mania versus someone who's acutely psychotic with, and I presume that's psychotic in mania versus someone who's manic without, psycho without psychosis. Does it, in your experience, influence the dose of atypicals that you use? You know, that's actually a very interesting question. I have to say I don't think so, but I'm not sure. Part of the problem um, in trying to really uh, answer this question is um, very often the evidence-based guidelines or the regulatory studies for patients with schizophrenia and patients with bipolar disorder 
tend to have uh, different dosing strategies. I think we could say with a broad brush stroke that the doses tend to be about the same. Um, there may be situations where uh, the dose is a little bit less uh, for acute mania than acute schizophrenia. Um, we can say quite confidently that if the atypical antipsychotic is being used for the depressive phase of bipolar disorder, that dose tends to be less than the acute schizophrenic dose and the acute antimanic dose. Question for you, Mark, regarding the symptom profile of a patient with mania or mixed state. Are there any symptoms or constellation of symptoms that would influence your decision to start with either an atypical antipsychotic or an anticonvulsant as the first medication? So the, the question is uh, the first algorithm split. Uh, what presentation of, was it mixed mania or just mania? Yeah, any type of, uh, let me just reword the question. I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. Um, what symptoms or what constellation of symptoms would influence your decision to choose an atypical as the first agent in your sequence versus an anticonvulsant in the sequence? Okay. I, I think for me it's easier to answer that question the opposite way around. Um, the If I'm debating between an anticonvulsant such as um, uh, let's, for this case, let's just state explicitly carbamazepine or valproate because uh, lamotrigine we don't prescribe in the acute phase of mania. Right. But carbamazepine or valproate um, versus an atypical antipsychotic, um, if someone has a history of migraines that have been unstable and really trying to get migraine prophylaxis done at the same time, then I really lean towards uh, valproate primarily as a number of these anticonvulsants can have migraine prophylaxis uh, as an as a indication um, with regulatory studies or at least some evidence to suggest some benefit in that regard. I will as well lean towards carbamazepine and valparate if um, there is a concurrent alcohol problem and potential benefit of providing alcohol withdrawal uh, or alcohol abuse relapse prevention. The caveat there would be that if there is a history of pancreatitis uh, or difficulties with rapid titration, I would be inclined not to use these anticonvulsants. So that's really how I kind of conceptualize whether we're going with anticonvulsants first. Migraine comorbidity, um, substance abuse comorbidity, provided that liver function tests are uh, normal uh, and that there's not a history of pancreatitis. What leans me towards an atypical antipsychotic is while we definitely know um, that non-psychotic mania can respond to atypical antipsychotics, um, it seems kind of like a no-brainer that if there are psychotic symptoms or, or prominent uh, paranoid ideation that uh, I would tend to lean towards the atypicals in that regard. If I'm really needing sedation, um, uh, to rapidly stabilize a patient and, and maybe I'm not using the benzodiazepines or there's a problem with them, then I would really emphasize the atypical uh, mood stabilizers, quetiapine and olanzapine, and to some degree risperidone. Um, if I am able to get sedation through another alternative means and I'm more concerned about weight gain liability, uh, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, we just know that the initial medicines that tend to be helpful for acute mania, we tend to keep them on board for the maintenance phase, and I don't want to create additional medical comorbidity while treating their acute mania. That's when I will lean towards 
um, uh, more weight-neutral atypical antipsychotics, such as aripiprazole and ziprazidone. I don't have a lot of experience yet with acenapine, which is the newest uh, FDA-approved agent for mania. Um, I think its um, mode of delivery is relatively unique, and its side effect profile looks good. I think I think we're going to need a little more time to really kind of see where that medicine uh, uh, falls in, in people's algorithms. Thanks, Mark. A question that uh, in many ways is, uh, pertains to your research, modafinil. It's off-label. It's not indicated for bipolar disorder, but you've been involved with this compound, we've got a couple of questions. Where, where is it? Uh, where is its role in bipolar disorder? Well, we got very interested in uh, modafinil, which is FDA proof for daytime somnolence and fatigue associated with a number of sleep disorders. As Roger was um, reviewing earlier in our broadcast, this is not FDA proof for uh, depression or bipolar depression, for that matter. We got interested in it, however, because we just know that very often the symptoms of bipolar depression are often atypical with prominent hypersomnia, hyperphagia, and psychomotor retardation. Uh, we also know that we can see a lot of uh, daytime somnolence and fatigue related to our very effective anti-manic mood stabilizers, and we thought we'd take a look at it. And in a preliminary study with uh, modafinil, we actually did find that the drug worked as an antidepressant. It was more effective than placebo, and the switch rates from depression to mania were no different than placebo. That uh, was a, a, a study that was funded from the Stanley Foundation. The uh, pharmaceutical company Cephalon decided to do a study of uh, our modafinil, the racemic enantiomer of the, the medication that we were studying, and their uh, pilot study looked uh, to be positive on some outcome measures, but not all of them. Uh, but it was enough so that they're wanting to take a more careful look at the medication. To me, I view this as a good thing. Um, when we look at the number of treatments that are available for the acute phase of mania, we have done a very uh, impressive job over the last decade. We have uh, a number of very effective anti-manic agents, a number of different classes that are there, mechanisms of action um, are reasonably diverse, tolerability issues um, um, are important there. But when we really look at the depressive phase of bipolar disorder, which is where most patients live, um, and it certainly was where most of the symptoms uh, were for George until this manic episode, we have very little treatment. We have two FDA-approved agents, um, quetiapine monotherapy and the combination of olanzapine and fluoxetine. And I think both of those agents, uh, while potentially helpful, certainly does not uh, obviate the need for more study and developing more uh, diverse, effective treatment options for the depressive phase. Questions come in about acenapine, which I'll answer. Acenapine recently approved August of last year, 2009, for mania in mixed states with without psychotic features in the adults with bipolar disorder. The question is, what is the dose? The dose is 10 milligram BID. That was the dose that was the initiation dose and was the dose prescribed uh, to over 90% uh, of patients throughout their duration in, in acute mania trials. And, Mark, to your, your comment earlier, we're going to look forward to see how things uh, unfold in the real world with, with saffrous or acenapine. Um, it does have this rapid absorption, which is unlike other atypicals. We'll see what that actually uh, translates into in terms of acceptability of that therapy. Roger, could you speak to the, the question that was earlier in the broadcast about differential dosing of acute psychosis and schizophrenia versus mania as it relates to acenapine? I'm not aware of that. Yeah, there's actually no evidence that the dose okay. is different. Now, part of that is in, in part 
due to the fact that acetamine dosing stayed static throughout the, most of the, the clinical trial in mania, 20 milligrams total daily dose. But you know the, 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 the related principle about whether or not the presence or absence of psychosis would be a variable influencing the dose of an atypical is an excellent question. I uh, am not aware that that is in, indeed the case. Um, so um, uh, interesting, but I, I don't see any evidence that treating acute mania, mania in the absence of psychosis would be, on average, a lower or higher dose than whether the patient has psychosis. Um, the question regarding non-pharmacological approaches, uh, we touched on that very briefly, but not really specifically um, for George. Uh, comments regarding the psychosocial treatment of George? Yeah, I think um, it is very clear uh, that medications alone are not an optimal uh, treatment strategy for patients with bipolar disorder. I think the strategy is is what is the best um, uh, focused psychotherapy uh, in addition to a particular pharmacotherapy for that individual patient. How do we uh, tailor fit um, 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 psychotherapies to a particular patient? Um, I think in general, the evidence for a number of uh, focused psycho psychotherapies, IPSRT, family-focused therapy, and cognitive behavioral therapy for bipolar depression really looks excellent. Um, and some of their maintenance prophylactic data from the STEP uh, BD program with David Miklowitz as a senior author in the American Journal of Psychiatry look uh, superb. Um, the beauty of focused psychotherapies is that the side effect profile is very good. Um, uh, treatment adherence uh, with the right therapist is excellent, and we don't have to worry about treatment emergent mania, at least to, to my read of that literature. I think, um, as we talked about with George, interventional psychotherapies for acute mania are more challenging, and it's unclear how helpful they really are. And I liked our discussion about really emphasizing in, in acute mania the importance of sleep hygiene, trying to minimize significant stressors that may be fueling the illness, and trying to maximize every opportunity to promote treatment adherence. I mean, those are, in fact, uh, uh, tenets of, uh, of psychotherapy, but perhaps not in a formal way. I, I wouldn't try to get much more done psychotherapeutically than that in the midst of an acute mania. But for bipolar depression, and most certainly in the maintenance phase, um, uh, identifying um, um, maintenance psychotherapies is going to be uh, strategically important. A couple of questions about more off-label usage. I'll take the first one. It, uh, it pertains to the use of anti-inflammatory agents in bipolar disorder. question is, is there a body of evidence supporting their, their use? Again, they're not FDA indicated. There's a, a principle to the question which is highly, highly intriguing and very interesting, and that is, is that disturbances in inflammatory networks may in some way subserve the symptoms, the signs of bipolar disorder, and there is a compelling body of literature that that might be the case. In terms of using sort of you know more um, typical or conventional um, anti-inflammatory agents like NSAIDs, non-steroidals, or COX-2 inhibitors, there is a very small body of literature, largely investigator-initiated studies, proof-of-concept studies, which are in fact indicating that there might be some type of symptom alleviating effect in bipolar disorder with these agents. And these agents have also been used in schizophrenia and major depression as further proof of concept building on this model. Specifically, um, sorry, keeping going with this, there are in fact new studies with biologics, anti-TNF or TNF neutralizers in bipolar disorder which are underway and people are beginning to look at this. 
Keep in mind that many of the medications that we prescribe, atypicals, anticonvulsants, lithium, these, these agents have very complex immunomodulatory effects. So we think about them from the orthodox way. They target monoamines and so on, but they also have effects on these other inflammatory systems. So it could be, a, I think, a fertile vista for the future for, for new treatment in, in, in our patient population. Mark, coming back to yourself, I've had a couple of questions here regarding clonidine. Do you see a role for it? Again, it's not indicated for bipolar disorder. Do you see a role for it in managing bipolar disorder? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I know that there can be a benefit of using clonidine in a lot of activation syndromes and PTSD. Um, I really wouldn't view this as a primary treatment for bipolar disorder. Uh, it does not have an FDA indication. I'm not aware of any uh, evidence-based or placebo-controlled trials specifically as it relates to acute mania as the case today or, or depression for that matter. Um, but um, I can certainly imagine uh, a number of uh, comorbidities, perhaps uh, uh, yeah, PTSD being one of them, uh, uh, where that might be helpful. One of the questions concern, uh, comes in regarding a sexual history. I've had two or three questions regarding this, interesting. Um, do you see a sexual history as a routine part of evaluating a patient with bipolar disorder? Uh, most certainly, um, and uh, that can often, in my mind, uh, be very helpful in distinguishing whether someone is suffering from acute hypomania to acute mania. We know that impulsivity and energy and, and libido uh, can be elevated uh, in mania, and, to, uh, and that pattern can often in my clinical practice quite frequently really be the deciding factor um, with whether a presentation is really more hypomanic or manic and, and specifically kind of keying into uh, unprotected sex, unprotected uh, number of unprotected sexual partners, uh, the, those symptoms can be uh, relevant. I also think um, I always use sexual um, uh, activity, libido, desire um, as an important screening and longitudinal assessment in the context of bipolar depression. I want to know how much of that is really a symptom of their illness versus a potential side effect of medications that we might be prescribing. I'm going to ask our operator if we have any more live callers. Yes, sir, and just as a reminder to our phone participants, if you do have a question, press star 1, and we can go right to the side of uh, Dr. Basu in Ohio. Go ahead, please. Oh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I was wondering two things. One was uh, uh, regarding the sexual side effects that you were mentioning. Now, a lot of times the bipolar patients, and especially with rapid cycling, they are not willing to take anything, but then they, if they have the sexual side effects to the atypical antipsychotics, what is the, what do you really do to, you know, do you prescribe or do you kind of suggest that they should see an internist or what kind of suggestions do you have? Well, if, um, uh, excellent question. It's something that we, um, if we start to look for, we, we really find uh, with uh, great frequency. Uh, you know, it's unlikely that this is going to be a referral to a general internist or a family practitioner. If I can get a sense that it's really related to uh, pharmacotherapy, uh, then we discuss uh, whether or not there might be uh, any um, uh, amelioration uh, of, of the side effects. So, number one, reevaluating if, in fact, 
the medication is helpful and it really is the best medication for them. Um, if, if we see the sexual dysfunction with a mood stabilizer, can we switch it to another? If we see it with an SSRI, can we switch it to a different antidepressant, those sorts of things. That, that can be done in our office without a lot of difficulty. I think um, the concern would be if uh, there is uh, some desire to look at other um, antidotes for sexual dysfunction, um, whether it is Viagra or some other similar compound, um, you know, if uh, if there's a if there's a cardiac history for that patient, uh, I would be inclined to refer them to general medicine just to make sure we're not missing some sort of subocult um, medical condition. But I think as it relates to identifying the pharmacotherapeutic agent that might be responsible for the sexual dysfunction. Um, dose reduction, medication switch, drug holiday in some circumstances, I, I think that can be very easily done in our offices. Thank you very much for your question. Another one I had was for pancreatitis because I've had a few cases of pancreatitis with quetiapine and, you know, like uh, that was also recorded by one of the internists over here. What's your experience like? Have you seen any or it's just me or is it the drug also? You know, I, I think this is really where um, we as colleagues need to put our resources together. We're all very busy clinicians, um, and, I, and it's important to share that information. I personally have not seen a pancreatitis with uh, quetiapine. I have seen pancreatitis with valproate, uh, and I have seen it with uh, gabapentin, oddly enough. Um, and it was with the gabapentin case that I went to the literature, and, and uh, this is not just an anticonvulsant phenomena. We can see it um, with other mood stabilizers that we might prescribe. The challenge is how much of this is really drug-related, how much of this is uh, really related to the patient's lipid uh, state, and how much of it might be related to other um, risk factors such as alcoholism. Um, I, I think uh, it's important to, to, to monitor all, all these drugs and get a sense as to what might be the, the greatest offending agents. I don't think we've had quetiapine around long enough to really say that, yes, it probably has a rate similar to valproate or, or more, but, but your sorts of observations would be important in really trying to get that uh, knowledge base expanded. Thank you very much for your question. I'm going to take uh, one more email question, uh, Mark, coming back to yourself. And um, it's a question pertaining to George. We had several questions that have asked, why in this case did you go with an atypical rather than divalproic? People have expressed concern about metabolic and body composition changes with atypicals. With that concern in mind, why an atypical versus divalproic? Well, yeah, I think what I like about these chart reviews and these case reports is um, – these are important reviews, and, and I think we're in a position with our field where there probably are a number of very appropriate avenues to uh, pursue, and maybe there's maybe one or two that just would not be ideal. Um, I think the most important point is, is making uh, a decision based on evidence-based, not dictated on evidence-based, and then just having really careful, appropriate follow-up. The reason um, I did not pursue Valproate here was related to Dr. Basu's question, who we just heard from in Ohio, is I did have a history from um, this patient that his mother probably had a illness that I looked 
that I assume to be very similar to his, uh, a bipolar illness with comorbid substance use, and I was concerned about uh, her already documented history of pancreatitis. Now, you could argue that that's her and that's not him, and, and I would absolutely agree with that. That would be a valid point. I viewed it as a, as a theoretical risk, but a risk nonetheless that I thought um, just didn't make a lot of sense for me to go with. And more importantly, um, 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 the, while the metabolic concern um, is there, um, and we already knew that he had a BMI of 30 and that there were concerns about quetiapine with weight gain, my sense was if I see some weight gain going up within a week or so, I can track that and change it if need be, but I can't change uh, the acute onset of pancreatitis. So I saw one of those risk factors as, as being more modifiable than another one. Well, I think to your point, Mark, it does speak to the complexities and, and the nuances of cases, and I think this journal club format allows us to address those complexities. The challenge we have is our time goes by very quickly, and we, and, uh, we have had uh, literally torrents of questions, lots of questions, and we haven't had the time to get to all these questions. I think it really speaks to how the case, I think, really resonates with you know us as clinicians. I want to thank you, Mark, for joining me today, and especially for helping us translate really the, the evidence into improving practice for our patients. Thank you to all of our audience today. And if you weren't able to get your question answered, please send an email to questions at cmeoutfitters.com by April tw uh, 12, 2010. Uh, Dr. Fry and I will answer the questions online over the next couple of weeks and post our responses at www.neurosciencecme.com slash 446. I'm Dr. Roger McIntyre. Thanking you for taking the time to join us today. I do hope that you are able to incorporate this evidence into your practice to improve the care of your patients.